Brett, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. A very exciting episode today. I hope I've spent a lot of time trying to prepare for this episode, and at the end of it, I threw away all my notes, and I'm gonna kind of wing it here with Dan. Dan Lawrence is co-founder and CEO of ChainGuard, a one and a half year old startup uh, tackling supply chain, software supply chain security. Dan, welcome to the show. Hopefully you'll be able to help me filter out all this noise around supply chain issues and help our audience understand we'll try. You know, what it all Thanks means. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you, before we get started on supply chain issues, give me a little walk through your background. Uh, you have a mechanical engineering background coming out of college. Yeah. Um, how did you get <laughs> yeah, I'll into go in reverse. Um, so we got this company started uh, just over a year ago. Um, before that, I was at Google as a software engineer for about nine years. Um, that's when I got into the cloud, dev infra, open source kind of security area, that whole intersection, which eventually turned into supply chain security. Uh, we'll, we'll explain that definition in a little bit. Um, before that, though, uh, yeah, I went to school um, for mechanical engineering. Um, so, yeah, this was, uh, you know, physical systems, thermodynamics, engines, heat transfer, all of that fun stuff. Um, I hadn't done any software before college. I didn't, uh, you know, do anything, any classes or anything, even in college. Uh, we had to learn programming for mechanical engineering, though. We had to learn uh, MATLAB simulations and programming the 3D printers and milling machines and all of that stuff. And uh, I just started to like it more. It was too late to change my major at that point. I was a couple of years in. Um, figured I'd just finish that one out and uh, look for software engineering jobs after. So that's how I got into this field. It's a lot faster. Um, you know, you're still making things. You don't have to order parts from China. You don't have to wait, uh, you know, weeks for things to arrive before you can build what you're trying to do. It's kind of what got me interested. Was there an easy transition? Is that an easy transition from the mechanical engineering space um, into software? I mean, it, yes and no. Um, you know, a lot of it was more learning, uh, learning at home, learning on the side. Um, but programming is, I mean, it's gotten even easier to learn on your own at this point. So many resources available online. Right. Yeah, I started with MATLAB and then picked up Python. Python was big at that point. Um, and then ended up switching over to Go and other programming languages as uh, my career went on. Uh, Google was your first entry into security, security, yeah. Um, yeah, even toward the end, I, I was, I'm not a security person. I don't really have a security background. I was doing you know, mostly infrastructure, software, um, and uh, developer tooling. Um, up until 2016, 2017, um, and then this whole supply chain security uh, area that we'll, we'll define that soon <laughs> um, started to worry me. Um, and so I started focusing more and more on that um, before the topic uh, you know, really existed and before it was uh, something that anybody was thinking about. Well, let's start right there. Why was yeah. it worrying you? Uh, supply chain issues are not entirely new. They're, they date back to the 1980s. It's been quite kind of dark through the last couple of years. But there's been documented attacks of supply chain type attacks over the years. Why in the last two years you say it kind of really? Yeah, they, to you know, like you said, they're not new. They go back all the way back to, you know, the first one I would call it 1984, you know, is when Ken Thompson published his famous paper called Reflections on Trusting Trust. Yeah, um, explaining a, I, there's some debate now, actually, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, I saw some debate over whether or not that was a real or hypothetical thing he did, or, you know, whether he just talked about how he could have or whether he actually did it. I think he's confirmed he did it. No, yeah, he, I think he said he's done at least parts of it, you know, some of it was theory, some, uh, but he did actually, you know, do quite a bit. Um, and then I think, you know, everybody just kind of forgot about it for a while. Um we're seeing the spike now uh, for a combination of reasons, if I had to guess. There's no you know, clear answer. We could go find a bunch of attackers and go ask them why they're doing it. 
Um, but but wait, 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 wait. I want to I yeah. want to get into the spike and the dating a little bit because are we really seeing a spike or is it just a spike of what we know about and 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 how much of it remains in the dark by design? Supply chain security issues should, mm-hmm. is a dark thing, right? Like what is what what, what was that moment at Google mm-hmm. that flipped into? Wow, this stuff really, really worries me. Like yeah. I said, we've had these, you know, we've had a few supply chain attacks. Over yeah, here. so I think, uh, you know, what caused me to worry, what caused everybody else to worry, and probably a little bit different, but around the same time, you know, early, much earlier, so before this became you know, a huge thing in open source, uh, a bunch of big tech companies, right? You know, I was at Google, Google got hit, but, it, you know, we weren't the only ones. A bunch of big tech companies got hit around the same time, the 2012, kind of 2013 timeframe, uh, by nation state attacks. So, you know, these were. Um, different, you know, nation states, advanced threats, um, you're getting, having people. Are you referring to Aurora yeah, or, or post Aurora? Yeah, Aurora, um, you know, when those first okay. got detected, 2012, 2013. That was earlier, 2011. Yeah, so I joined in 2012, right when stuff was happening. Um, uh, I mean, this was the same time as like, you know, the NSA Snowden papers era too. And it kind of reflected a fundamental shift in how people thought about security at that point. Um, before then, it, it kind of a lot of this fed into zero trust to another buzzword um, that created, but it kind of created the shift from uh, we're all one big company, we're all trusted, everybody has access to all of the infrastructure inside uh, because we all work here and trust each other. Um, to well, we're a big company at this point. You know, we have 30,000 engineers. Um, probability would say there's a probably a high single digit number of folks that are working for a nation state or working against our behalf and just managed to get through the interview process. At that scale, you just have to consider that possibility and design your systems differently. So it's not that whole, all the memes you've seen of zero trust. Like once you get inside, you have full access to everything. Um, you know, no, kind of inverting that whole model to um, right, individual controls and not giving developers access to the entire world um, and locking systems down so that one compromised account or one compromised individual doesn't have access to compromise the entire world right and then oh, yeah. beyond corp came out of those aurora attacks and then the concept of zero trust expanded throughout yeah. uh, throughout the industry at google you guys were starting to starting to tinker with addressing software supply chain os uh, uh open source dependencies and all of that stuff can you talk a little bit about the mindset there when salsa six store and all yes yeah, so this is still way earlier you know in the, the the zero trust beyond corp frame but um you know t- didn't stop there, right? You know, it, it was, what else can a single person do? It's not just, you know, log into a database and steal data. It's who controls the build system, you know, that um, pushes the code to talk to that database, who uh, puts the code into the repository, who's reviewing that. You know, taking that same principle, like what could one person do and applying it to everything that affects production and how stuff gets to production. Um, the Beyond Corp stuff, zero trust networking side kind of took off faster outside. Um, the internal kind of code and development lifecycle security took a little while longer. Um, the Salsa SIG store open source stuff came um, kind of right after seeing all that work happen on some of my, like the internal projects I was working on. Um, I switched teams and started working on Kubernetes and containers and all of that stuff, which got started uh, open source outside of uh, our internal infrastructure. And that was like right. you know, stepping back 10 years in security. It was like, what do you mean everybody's building these things on their laptops and setting up Jenkins under their desks and pushing, you know, giant 100 megabyte binaries that nobody can tell what's inside of them to GitHub and downloading them. And, you know, this is the way you just build things in the cloud and you're just supposed to pretend these risks don't exist. 
Uh, and so that's what caused me to start worrying about it. Um, you know, just seeing you know the right way to do things, seeing you know the systems you have to put in place to protect against certain threats, and then you know stepping out to this new open source cloud native world that had just started without any of that stuff yet. Uh, can you for the for just for the audience? I know we're throwing out a lot of product names and buzzwords. Talk a little bit about what Salsa Framework is and Sigstore is because I think it fits into what I want us to. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. So these are some pretty new open source frameworks and tools uh, to help secure open source supply chains. Coming out of Google, right? I mean, Google led the development of this yeah, and then yeah. released a lot. So of Salsa is a, a project called the what is it? Uh, software Supply Chain Levels for Software Artifacts. There we go. SLSA, Supply Chain Levels for Software Artifacts. Um, it's a pretty simple security framework. It's designed to be incremental. So there's levels one, two, three, or four. I mean, you can work your way up with that by you know, hardening the way you develop software um, to get to higher levels. Uh, this is based off of a, you know, another system that was built up inside of Google in those early days. Um, there's been a white paper published on it now called Binary Authorization for Borg um, that gets into the technical details about how a lot of it's implemented. But it was very similar. There were still four levels internally, and teams had to start increasing the levels they were at. And like this kind of ratchet would just crank up each year, and you'd have to do more and more. And, uh, change the way systems were built. And the granularity there is pretty nice too because you can focus on certain super sensitive systems first and try to get those to level four or raise the baseline for everybody and move them you know, from zero to one and then one to two and kind of make the right decisions um, at a very, like you don't need to know the details if you're a CISO with 10,000 developers. You just can know, yeah, this one's important. Let's get that one to four first and let's get half of the other ones to one and kind of make prioritization decisions that way. Um, so based on that same principle of making sure only two people have to review any change um, and then applying that to the entire production life cycle. Uh, what happened from 2014, 15 that changed why we're seeing so much news and visible activity around supply chain incidents? Did something specific happen? Did we get better at finding them? Did we get better at uh, pinpointing areas of, like, what happened that caused what we are starting to see this data, uh, uh, malicious data? Yeah, I think it was a few factors. Um, One, the obvious one, you're called out, you're a skeptic, I'm a skeptic. You know, are, are more of these actually happening or are we just detecting them more or are we just looking out for them more? Um, I think that's definitely true, right? I've, um, you know, you can publish a typo squatted thing on PyPy now, and somebody will notice and start tweeting about it 10 minutes later, you know, before nobody was really watching for these things. Mm-hmm. Um, open source has, you know, risen dramatically too over that time. The open source adoption, you know, it's always been there. It's always been there in the cloud native space. But I think in the last decade is really when it did penetrate fully into these legacy corporate banking, you know, internal environments where it hadn't quite reached uh, in the previous couple right. of decades. And why did that present? Well, it's there now, right? It's ubiquitous. Um, Open source is everywhere. You know, you've probably seen the studies now. It's, you know, 90% or 98% of organizations, and it represents, you know, 80 to 90% of the code and the -the off-the-shelf application that they slap together. Right, but you guys have spent the last decade telling me that open source software has more eyeballs, and by more eyeballs, it's by more secure by, by default, and so on. Why? Why does? Why are? Why are these two things? Yeah, they're not quite in conflict. conflict. And I think the the third factor here is what really caused this shift. Uh, the third factor we didn't quite get to is um, we've gotten good enough at other security, um, right? We've gotten a lot like nobody's full zero trust, but everybody's partially on the way, and most people have heard of multi-factor authentication and know not to reuse the same password on every website. 
and we have TLS everywhere. And, you know, when you log into your bank, you don't see that red X anymore saying your password is getting sent in clear text. And, you know, all of the much, much, much easier ways have gotten closed so at this point. And attackers are going to the next relatively easiest one. You're making the argument that infrastructure security has gotten so much better that they have to go supply chain side to do so. And then, so, but why are there a ransomware epidemic everywhere? And people can easily, people still, I still can't click on stuff. If I work at, if I work at, pick a company, I have to spend an hour a month like doing these fake phishing tests to train me not to click on stuff. Like that's the sure reality it's not of an fake? organization. Yeah. Are you sure it's uh, not a real phishing thing? We've set a big one at our company. Everybody's that's asking exactly for gift the cards. The point? <laughs> the point? Dan. Dan, it's 2022 yeah. and we can't click on stuff. I mean, we're on the internet and they're telling us we can't click on stuff. That I don't that listen. I click all the links. To me. I, I click them all. You're anyway. making the argument. <laughs> yeah. No, but in all seriousness, you're making the argument that infrastructure security and the mitigations and some of the roadblocks that we've built in and zero trust and all these things have really changed the game. They're not perfect, the but they've changed the game. You know, they've made attackers' life cycles harder. Um, and, uh, and I think supply chain attacks are a little bit different than old ones too. Um, easier? Not. I, I don't want to say easier. I think uh, the the attack radius, you know, the the shape of an attack is a little bit different. You know, you can't pick a single person, set up a spear phishing campaign, take over their SMS or something, get that person's emails. Instead, it's like you know, more like the the poisoning the well style. You know, you create something, get a bunch of people using right. it. You don't know exactly which ones you're going to hack. You don't know which ones you're going to get their credentials from, but you know you're going to get some. And yeah, it's it, so it's harder to be as targeted, but the impact is broader, and uh, they're easier to carry out overall, I think. But you you know you can't just pick a if somebody puts something inside of a vault, you can't just you know do a supply chain attack and get right into this super hard environment. But you can still get a bunch of Bitcoin mining time on VMs when people don't lock stuff down and steal you know whatever data and AWS keys you can find pretty easily. Right, but at the same time, there are real, real incidents that are complicated yeah. and sophisticated. Mm-hmm. SolarWind sunburst was not a uh, uh, was not a trivial attack. Mm-hmm. CodeCov attack was not trivial. I mean, there's been a bunch of Linux mm-hmm. kernel compromises and so on. It's not yeah. been entirely trivial. So they're different. Yeah. Like I said, you you talk about like low hanging yeah. fruit, malicious maintainers, malicious npm packages. But then there's the in- integrity issue. I mean, the yeah. SolarWinds thing when you when when you did. When you read a deep dive of the technical sophistication of the exploitation techniques, that was a pretty significant thing. And the question to you is, how many of those you believe is currently kind of just burrowing around out there waiting to be Mm -hmm. uh, detected? We we, we talked a little bit about detection getting a little better and we know what to look for. Give me a sense of what what percentage of all supply chain attacks currently on the way you think we have visibility into? Is it 5%? Is it 50%? It, it, it's hard to say, right? I think, you know, the, the one you talked about there, the solar one, one's a great example. And, you know, it almost count, conflicts exactly the last thing I said of, you know, these aren't targeted. And, you know, I think that was one where they were patient and very sophisticated and they walked their way back up the chain, right? But that's the it is. And, you know, one, they didn't... Though, right? SolarWinds wasn't the target there, right? The target was, you know, those government installations of software. And so that's what people really stared at. And you watch which vendors were getting software installed there. Might be a couple dozen. And you look through those and then you, you know, start figuring out which out of those you want to target. They're not your your target, though. They're they're a means to an end. You know, they're they're just kind of a step in the way. Right. But I had never heard of... Right. I had never heard of SolarWinds before that incident. And I guarantee you there's there's like 10 of those companies that we've never heard of that are just widely distributed yeah, everywhere and, think, and 
maybe victims of supply well, and chain. I think that's the big assets. shift and why, you know, jumping ahead, why this is such a hot topic in the industry right now. Um, you know, that 2010 Aurora timeframe we were just talking about, unless you were a hyperscaler cloud infrastructure provider with everyone's data um, you know, around the world, you didn't really have to worry about nation states. And, you know, a lot of folks would just throw up their hands and be like, yep, you know, yeah. if a massive APT with more resources than I have comes after me, that's just, it's a risk of doing business. And I guess we'll deal with that then, but we can't plan our lives around it. Um, and now what these more recent attacks have taught us is that, you know, you might not be the end victim, you know, you might not be the target here, but um, if you sell software to someone that sells software that is the target, now you're in those crosshairs and you know, now it's a real threat you do have to account for, even if you're not the one storing that sensitive data. Yeah, raise your hand if you've heard of, yeah, I had this conversation recently, raise your hand if you've ever heard of CodeCov. And the blast radius from that throughout Silicon Valley was scary. I mean, there was entire security programs running around with their hair on fire trying to figure out, we, we use these guys? Are we exposed? And then Rapid7 and a bunch of other companies came up as victims. But that's on like the, 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 the integrity side and the, the, you know, the targeted yeah. attack, APT, you know, mm -hmm. high, high level adversary. Supply chain issues also have like a massive quality mm -hmm. problem, code quality yep. problem, heart bleed, log for j shell shock. I mean, we can go down the yep. list. These are supply chain issues as well. Are are we addressing? We're bouncing around. I'm sorry, no, my um... head is all over the place because I really yeah because it's so I don't know how why you decided to tackle this problem. It just feels like it's uh, it's it's one of those like it's like that uh you know, that meme of you know, Charlie from things. Always Sunny in Philadelphia when he stays up all night. He's got the pins and the thing the, all the string tacked up on the board and gets all tangled up trying to solve a crime case. Yeah, that's what you feel like sometimes trying to untangle this. Hundred <laughs> percent. The question, the the question I'm trying to ask is. Are we addressing supply chain security as an industry with government executive order and all this noise that we're uh, all this activity in a coherent way that addresses all these different variants of supply chain issues, or are we having chain guard focus on whatever integrity and some other folks focus on this, and we just end up in this hodgepodge of trade? I'm trying to figure out where are we in ten years from now? Are we on top of this thing? Are we still kind of like in a ransomware epidemic because now some companies are uh, S bombs are going to fix it all. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to get to S bombs as well because S bombs is it kind is, of yeah. dominating the conversation, and that's uh, the, the, I don't want to get started there. But do you yeah. feel do you feel like as an industry as a whole? All, all, all participants are, are really in touch with what the problem is. I don't think so. I think, um, I think your point, S-bombs are taking up a lot of the conversation is true. I think there's a few different problems, and I think that's part of it. Um, you can't lump it all into, I mean, supply chain security is a problem. I don't think there's one solution to it all, though. Right? It's a bunch of distinct problems when you break it down, and they're all very different. Um, you did a great job just framing it between you know, SolarWinds, the attack on SolarWinds, and then Heartbleed, Log4j, Shock. These other big ones, different, very different, different things, things, right? Completely different um, things. To start out with, I break it down into those two categories. There's the integrity problem, um, which is you know, we can't trust the code we're running because we don't know how it was built. All of these intermediate systems in the way can be compromised. We're taking people at their faith that their laptops aren't compromised, that the distribution servers haven't been compromised. And then in the last year, we've seen pretty much all of those things get compromised. So we have little reason to believe people, uh, you know, um, take them at their word, even if we want to, even if we know the person, right? It's so easy to compromise the integrity of these supply chains. Okay, yeah. let's linger there for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah. Just linger on the integrity side of things. 
how are we as an industry approaching addressing it? Are we even approaching Yeah, I think you know, the salsa framework we started with is really just designed around that one piece, integrity. As you move to higher levels, you get higher integrity assurances. I think the, the NIST framework, the SSDF, um, the Secure Software Development Framework, does a great job at this as well. Um, there's a bunch of sections in there that tries to cover a lot more beyond um, even just supply chain security, but there's a big section in the middle um, that pretty much is overlaps and is in line with Salsa, and we work with the folks at NIST as they wrote this. Um, and so I think as these frameworks roll out, um, we're going to have to address this integrity problem. And as they roll out, are you getting a sense that they're, they're, they're being adopted? Do you get a sense that Salsa is becoming widespread? Because when you mention these things, they sound like, okay, these are amazing, amazing Google tools that has been internal Google tools for a long time, and they just went open source. And like, yeah. where are some of these folks? They just became available. Are we realistically starting to address It's a big spectrum, right? You talk this? to some folks, and they're planning next year's roadmap and already have initiatives in place. And you know, I think a lot of these attacks for better or worse, do a great job keeping these things fresh in people's minds. And inside a lot of these organizations, there are champions trying to improve a lot of this. And every time a different company gets hacked and there's a headline, like that's great fuel for them to get funding and resources to go make improvements. Right. Um, then there's another camp where, you know, the SSDF came out and the OMB and other government agencies are starting to put this into contracts and tell folks to take it seriously. And, um, you know, talked to somebody last week and I said, yep, 180 days from now, uh, the OMB says they're not going to renew our contract. Cool. Come back to me on day 179. I've got too much other stuff to do right now. So, you know, it, it's a range. But um, these government regulations are moving at light speed, honestly, for government regulations. And the executive order was barely a year and a half ago. You know, and step one in that is NIST should go tell people how to write secure software. Yeah, and that's a six to eight to nine month process of interviewing industry and collating different conflicting opinions and producing a document. Um, then the next amount of time is figure out what to do with that. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. That's, you can't just go pass a law saying stop putting bugs in software. It's, you know, you, you have to start farther upstream and they, we're not going to buy software unless it's developed securely. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, so this is happening very, very quickly, I would say, for the, you know, the type of response we're seeing. But it's going to be years. To, yeah. It's going to be years and years, but but the executive order on the the .gov energy really does help, though, right? I mean, it's really really driving conversations and change. I I even I even I'm seeing CISOs taking uh, courses on how to yeah. decipher what an S bomb means and how we. It's real. I it's, mean, it's a real. it's a boardroom topic in public companies. You know, this is a risk slide. I've seen you know a bunch of them uh, outlining the risk that companies face from supply chain. So it's it's a real topic. The the federal government involvement and attention. Um, it helps keep attention on it, right? I think that's the big one. You know, it takes a while to get the government to move like this, but once they do, you know, the, the spotlight's going to stay on this until uh, something actually happens. Whenever I think about the government and software supply chain, let's get into the S-bomb thing now. Um, S-bomb takes center stage because they've spent a lot of time trying to, even through the CTIA, it was NTIA prior to getting over to CISA, we had Alan Friedman, you know, trying to evangelize this S-bomb thing. A lot of CISOs, just like I mentioned, getting themselves up to, up to speed on whether they should even be publishing their S-bombs. Help me understand from your vantage point, because I feel like you're deeper into the trenches with a better understanding of this than any of us. 
What is S-bomb yeah. meant to solve? So that's the second half. We talk, The first part of the problem is integrity, um, right? The supply chains themselves. If you know you're getting software from a certain vendor, you can't trust that you're going to get it securely. The second half here is the inventory problem. Um, and I think that's where S-bomb starts to fit in. Um, the inventory problem is um, who cares what cryptographic signatures you have? You don't even know what software is running. Um, you know, how are you going to start verifying stuff? How are you, like, Salsa doesn't matter when... You know, you've got shadow infrastructure running everywhere, and you know, when Log4Shell happens, uh, how do you even go figure out what software to check to see if Log4Shell is inside of, right? It's just spreadsheets getting emailed back and forth, and right. you know, a management problem of inventory and assets on that side. Uh, and I think SVOM is designed to fix that uh, a couple ways, um, right? The first one is just take it at face value. Somebody tells you the inventory inside a piece of software. Maybe it's right, maybe it's not. You get some more data than you had before. You can look for log for shell a little bit faster. I think the bigger undercurrent of SVOM, and probably so many folks are opposed to it and everything, is the transparency piece. You know, you're not just providing folks vulnerability management, you're providing transparency into your software development practices. And that is you know, the, the bigger reason, in my opinion, for SVOMs and the reason it you know, makes folks so nervous and takes up so much of the conversation. Um, showing that, you know, one vendor's software is COBOL that runs on mainframes and hasn't been updated since the 1980s um, versus another one that's on a modern stack with daily rollouts following all of the best practices. You know, you can start to see this data from SBOMs and the way they're produced, the way they're published, the way they're consumed. And that allows people to make smarter purchasing decisions. But it also puts the spotlight on vendors that aren't following these best practices. So it's a cultural shift right. and a technological so you, 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 you... And it helps right. elevate some over others. Uh, it's like putting like, like putting right. labels, cybersecurity labels on things, right? It's um, the where are we with S bombs? Yeah. We are talking about this ingredient list and the creation of it. We have some uh, uh, specifications for the mm -hmm. delivery of it, uh, Cyclone and some of these specs. But are there machine readable tools uh, available today to absorb these mm -hmm. things? And how far are we from there? Like they're, 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 they're existing attack surface management scanning tools, for instance, do they have the ability to absorb an S-bomb, read it, and, and, and filter out something um, usable? It is very early days, is what I would say. Um, you know, it's, it's moving fast. Um, about 18 months ago, uh, you know, S-bomb was taking off. It was in all the regulations. And, you know, I spent a whole day just trying to find tools, install them, and make S-bombs for things. And like, at that point, I think I tried eight, right. and there's probably some Twitter thread we could dig up. I was like live tweeting. I tried about eight of them, and like six didn't install. One errored when I tried to make one, and the other one gave me an S bomb that was just wrong when you looked at line one. You didn't have to read farther in. Um, it's very very early, but you're still bullish on you're still bullish on on, on the um, value that it is. Yeah, it's stuff has improved a lot in that that amount of time. I'm still bullish that they will improve the transparency and vulnerability management aspects. Um, yeah, I think it's an important one. And I think, you know, I, I don't think this is the wrong approach to start with, right? You, we talked about that crazy tangled ball of yarn and all these different problems intertwined. Um, you know, starting on vulnerability management, getting folks thinking about asset management, um, I think is the, the first, I, I think that is the right step one. Start figuring out what software you have to protect. Um, the SVOMs aren't going to be great right away. I think everybody knows that. We're going to improve them over time. Just get something in the right formats. It's a two-sided ecosystem, right? You're trying to, you need to get folks used to producing them, and you need right. to get folks used to consuming them before we can make them better. Um, 
Is it the right place um, to start? Yeah, I, I think it depends where you are today. It depends on your security posture and everything, right? Some folks do have a good asset inventory, and to them, S bombs are going to be a sideshow and a distraction, right? You know, why do I need this other weird XML file? I already know where everything is running. This doesn't help me. Um, but a bunch of folks are not. You know, a lot of folks don't have any idea what they're shipping, and so you know, it's, it's raising the bar for everybody, I guess, and starting to get everybody on an evil playing field where we can share the same vocabulary and have a baseline understanding. Are you running into clients and places where uh, generating S bombs are helping folks to handle licensing requirements and which software, which, you know, yeah. fix their Yeah, so that's, needs? you know, a lot of the early S bomb adoption that has been out there, and, you know, it hasn't been a ton, but a, yeah, a lot of the it's early adoption that, right? in this space really came from licensing. Um, you know, there were a lot of licensing scares and wars and battles and billion dollar lawsuits going on about, you know, uh, copyright infringement in, mm-hmm. in open source too. Um, over the last couple of decades. And so a lot of folks started adopting SBOMs for that reason, to prove license compliance if you ever needed to. This comes up in startups. Every time you raise funding, you have to go put, produce a list of all the open source code you use and send it to lawyers so they can do diligence and you know, think you're, prove you're not infringing. Right, right. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, a lot of the original SBOM work was done around that. And it's a good start um, tracking what software you're using so you can track the licenses. I think some of the shift we're seeing now is that you know, licenses didn't change terribly often. You know, they do change in projects sometimes, but you know, there's a headline we see one every week or so when a startup relicenses something, but it doesn't change every commit, right? And you know, every time somebody makes a single change to right, source right. code, um, so they weren't really optimized for this, where it, every commit does matter for security, right? A bug gets introduced on a Tuesday and then it gets right. fixed on the Thursday, and you need to know if you're running the build from Wednesday in the middle when the bug was in there. Um, you know, licenses change on the order of years, but these bugs come in and out on the order of minutes. So a lot of the shift has been making these formats more finer grained, introducing more information to make them usable for security. When you're thinking about this integrity and code quality issues around software code uh, passing through these pipelines, are you thinking about supply chain issues all the way down to hardware as well, firmware, hardware, that connection there? Uh, because I feel like if you, if you can't trust a piece of hardware or the firmware it's coming through in the, before it gets to the build system, yeah. you can't trust anything at all. And I'm, in the supply chain conversation, a lot yeah. of that seems to me to be getting lost. Yeah, I mean, that's Am the I dream, right? right? I mean, there's been tons and tons of work over the last couple of decades. I mean, if you remember like the, those early scares about like root kits and things getting hypervised and not knowing they were in a VM and not being able to trust mm-hmm. the hardware you're running on, um, you know, there's been a ton of work in hardware roots of trust and verifiable boot and all of this. And then there's been... Well, we're still seeing APT they're, they're activity try. with firmware yeah. implantation. And we, we, and we know that the APT actors are living yeah, in that Yeah, they're going to keep trying. It's just waiting um, to be found. Right? Then there's this other world of, you know, PGP signing the packages at the top end. And, you know, nobody's really connected the two. And I think you know, being able to get down to a hardware root of trust for every piece of software is achievable. You know, they've done the hard parts down at the hardware level. You know, we've done a bunch at the top software level, and now you've got to connect them. Uh, you know, being able to... Yeah, so you just have to plumb in done. the middle there. You know, like, hook it up. Um, you know, you should be able to grab a random, you know, USB stick off the sidewalk, take the piece of software you find on that, and then verify that down to the, the exact hardware roots of trust of the machines that that was built on. There's no reason we can't do that. We're just not doing that today. Yeah. We're running out of time, but I got a couple of small issues sure. I want to touch base with, if you don't mind. We, we talked about integrity quality, but we have not. <laughs> Let's if go. you got time, I got time, my friend. The malicious maintainer issue yeah. is one that you mentioned. You mentioned typo squatting, and I believe coin mining. We've seen some examples of that. We've seen example of the protest uh, NPM package thing. Is that something that's defendable? Because I feel like that that gets dismissed as like, uh, 
easy to do top level stuff and and mm-hmm. is largely ignored is that fair that it's ignored one and how do we address that like how as an industry do we I think that's that the hardest one problem? right I think that's the elephant in the room the uh, malicious maintainer issue um, and there's a bunch of different flavors to it right but I think so how does a company like Google deal with that for example without going into like yeah. without going into sensitive details like how do you like what's an overarching strategy for handling um hope i guess and you know hope is not a strategy i mean there's you know there's a lot of low-hanging fruit ones right like oh it's that i I mean typo squatting there's a bunch of techniques for basic stuff like typo squatting and you know certain ways to scan code and look for well-known stuff but um you know like i think if you were a well-funded nation state i think you'd be crazy to not have a team of three or five engineers out there just writing open source libraries that are useful right play the long game in six, in nine, and twelve months, we've seen what some of these technologies, you know, how well adopted they can get um, very quickly. And all you have to do is do that, and you know, add value to people's lives, and the stuff's going to get adopted. And um, and then what? You know, you, now you've got code and access to repositories that are used you know, incredibly widely. Um, we haven't, and you, know, you were touching on this early, like how many of these are out there that we don't know about yet. Um, We've caught a few early on. We've caught a few in the middle, and you know, then there's been a lot of oh, well, that amounted to nothing. They didn't do anything, and it's like, are we really catching though? Because the only time we hear about it is when two or three vendors use it for marketing and PR purposes, right? I mean, like this is right. we're not really catching anything. We have some vendors scanning and yeah. looking for very specific things and putting out blog posts, and that's how it's raising our I mean, awareness. There was the, and I I argue that it's I mean, happening there was a much massive more than we're yeah yeah catching. I'm sure it's happening more than we're catching. It almost has to be. I mean, there's a massive GitHub typo squatting campaign from a month or so ago, and that was a sophisticated attack. They were forging commits to look real under certain accounts and they looked semantically valid and it wasn't just copy paste nonsense and somebody noticed you know on day three or something and they all got taken down everybody said oh this is a big you know a bunch of headlines about nothing and it was like you know there was a step two and a step three in this plan nobody did all of that for nothing um i think we just got very lucky on a few of these and i'm sure there's others where we haven't gotten gotten lucky i don't think there is a technological solution to that one i think that's the problem i think it's, cult- it's a cultural yeah. thing where you can kind of fit guardrails and, um, in. Yeah, and some of this comes up right? with the whole nationalistic geopolitical landscape. Somebody from our team did an amazing op-ed about a lot of this. And you know, folks get queasy when you're using open source written by certain countries and the developers live there and everything. And you don't, don't want to use this one because it's maintained by people in Russia or something. And 99% of the code you're using, you have no idea where the people live. And so like people get upset about the 1% where they do know where it is and don't like the answer. Um, and you know, you're avoiding the hard questions of... Um, you know, where's the rest of it coming from? And you have no idea. <laughs> Hi, you, you paint a, you paint a, a picture of like <laughs> chaos and it fits right in with my own yeah. kind of commodion. Everything is screwed uh, uh, thing, but, but oh, the venture yeah, capitalists are here to fix it all. Right. I mean, the last, there's a funding frenzy in your space. You guys, even your round is abnormally large a round. You raised 50 plus five, 55 million so far. You have a bunch of competitors coming raising some seed rounds in the 25 million, 36, 40 million dollar ranges. What are we supposed to take from all this VC activity in the space? Is it just because of solar winds? Or is it just dry powder throwing at things? Or are, 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 you, are, are real mm-hmm. companies emerging to help fix what we just described as massive? Problem? Yeah, I think like this is a big multi-year 
five, 10 year fix for the industry, right? This isn't a short term. Somebody's going to come up with some magic answer. Everyone's going to buy it and be secure the next year kind of trend. And so I think that's what folks are gearing up for, right? We're, we're all going to be here for a while. There's a lot of work to do. Um, you know, our approach is, you know, this is supply chain security, but it's not, it's development security, really. It's, you know, we have to change the way software is developed. This isn't something you can just throw a proxy in front of and make secure or bolt something on at the end. Um, or some fancy scanner will find fewer or more vulnerabilities depending on which one you're looking for that day. Um, it, it really is a, a change in the way you write software from start to finish. And you have to pay more attention to code, you, open source dependencies you pull in. You have to update them. You have to pay more attention to your own code, even inside of your own company if you're at a large organization. Um, you have to pay attention to how it's built, right? You have to treat build systems like production systems. Um, and, you know, I think people are seeing each one of these sentences, there's probably five startups, you know, hidden in there, the opportunity for them. Um, and so I think that's why it's such a, yeah, don't, don't, perfect. Don't encourage uh, are you starting them, one? Um, but... <laughs> don't encourage them. I have enough of these supply chain startups. Every every company is a supply chain startup and it, 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 it yeah. equally enthuses me mm -hmm. because like we are now, we're starting to see some real innovation around things. And knowing how venture capital works and how money is thrown after like ideas, two guys with an idea, and and what and this spill off like downstream crap that the rest of the industry has to deal with because yeah. of that makes me worried. So I'm not sure where we are. Are we are we like really throwing money at a really really significant problem, or are we heading into what cloud was and mobile mm -hmm. was and all these other dead dead? Uh, Did you just call cloud and mobile dead categories? <laughs> Secured, uh, sure, mobile sure. security, 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 security. Yeah. but you know what? Cloud I mean, security is doing great, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> Cloud um, security. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean, though, right? It's like there's just so much crazy money. Sure. Let, let me ask you a question this way: Why do you need a 25 million seed round? Like, whatever happened to the original days of raising a proper five million dollar seed round with a good idea, proving it out? getting your ARR up to a certain point before you can get 20 million series A and then a 50 million B. Or why are you raising a 50 million A? Like, well, what is the rationale? For um, you know, the problem? letters are sort of meaningless, I think, is some of it. You know, there's different schools of thought there. You know, there's, does C just mean the first round you raise? You know, does A mean the second? Or are these all tied to some other broader targets? And you see, folks, at the end right. of the and day. And at the end yeah, of the day, none of it really matters. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you see it, some right? folks. Yeah shifting more or lower just because the, you know, with this funding crunch that we've had, it's really affecting later stage companies. And, you know, that crunch is hitting people at the B round and stuff right now. Right. And, yeah, you know, if you come out of the gate, call your thing an A and nine months later, you've got to raise a B and you're going against people that have been around for four years trying to raise that same B and struggling, um, you know, you're not going to look, you're not going to look as attractive. Right. Um, so I think some of it's, you know, there's even pre-seed rounds now. Have you heard of those? And pre-pre-seed and accelerators and yeah. stuff. So it's a... Uh, Folks trying to shift stuff earlier to avoid those hard, hard conversations coming later. There's a certain, there's a certain, I don't want to call it grind, but there's a certain uh, urgency that comes to the startup that's, you know, looking at money running out six months from now. And that urgency drives innovation at, at pace and at scale that really is encouraging. Are you worried as an entrepreneur? You know, you've I'm got about big, lots, big yeah. investors. <laughs> Big VCs, are you worried about you know that 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 urgency might be missing? Like you're so well capitalized that you don't you don't need to like close this last deal just to hire this next guy. Like that's real startup life. Are you worried at all, or are you just? Um, 
I mean, th there's a bunch of variables thing. in play, right? And, you know, the I think what a lot of folks realize this year is that the, the macroeconomic climate is a massive one that you don't get to control. Um, yeah, I, you know, right. if you look at what happened in 2020, 2021, when the markets were great and everybody, you know, was doubling every three months just because they were around and the money was everywhere, um, folks were raising two or three times a year and only getting six months of runway at a time and that kind of thing. And, and that urgency is great, but it's... Is it really there if you know you're going to be able to raise in six months? Well, it's not six months. I mean, you should be raising. I mean, not last year. I mean, folks, I mean, last year, I see the, the last couple of years, folks were you know raising constantly and taking small rounds and doubling every six months and stuff. And yeah, there's the amount of runway, but if you, if you know the market's great, if you know you'll be able to get that check when you need it, you know the urgency's not really there either. Um, and then the rug got pulled out from a lot of you know folks, unfortunately, when the market collapsed and they were yeah. trying to hit some target and delayed raising. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the way we look at it, you know, there's, there's a crash happening right now. You know, the startup valuations are tanked. Um, it's going to take a while to come back out of. Um, so we raised a massive round right before that um, you know, and timed that. So, you know, we don't have to worry how bad it gets somewhat right now. We just have to worry how long this lasts. Right. And there's pressure, you know, we, if this lasts two years, if this lasts three years, you know, that that extra month, you know, makes a big difference at that point um, you know, before we yeah, can go. Yeah. Fair enough. But everyone has to, every, chain guard has kind of set the bar for where your funding route needs to be to be taken seriously. And that's what's like, a, a, I feel like it's driving a lot of things. Let me end on this. How is business? How is chain guard doing? Uh, you guys have products in market now. Talk a little bit. Give me the spiel. It's going great. Going yeah. On. I mean, our original plan was, we have a bunch of open source tools because that's where we're starting. We're trying to secure open source. We're trying to you know, get developers to think differently about the way they write and consume code. What, what um, is the tool? Uh, mostly around the tool. SIGStore project. So signing and verifying the code that they're using, being okay. able to trace that back. Um, and that adoption has been amazing. Right? You know, it's been introduced in almost all popular open source language package managers over the last year. I don't think I've ever seen anything go that fast. Kubernetes. NPM, Python, RubyGems, Maven Central, you, know, you name it. Um, and then start to build products based on top of that. So, you know, the open source stuff started rolling downhill faster than we thought. So we spent more time this year working on products than we had planned. Um, so we have two products out right now. We just announced those a couple of weeks ago. Um, the first product is ChainGuard Enforce. Um, so that is our, uh, if you look at software delivery from left to right, the whole shift left analogy, um, ChainGuard Enforce is as far right as you can go, right? This is the agent running in your product. As far right, yeah. As far so this right. This is the agent running in production, watching what is there, and alerting you, telling you about risks along the way. So it starts out all the way right and gets to look back at the development lifecycle for how things got there. Um, this you throw into containerized environments, tells you what's in your containers. If we find one, we don't know where it came from, we can alert you to that. And it's starting the chain of trust there in production at the last step. So you can have that choke point, you can have an enforcement point to increase security of the artifacts reaching your production environment. You're adopting an assumed breach mentality. Yeah, I mean, every, for everything in production, we want to be able to trace that back to the hardware root of trust, you know, basically that we were talking about of, you know, how it got there. If we can't tell, then that's a flag. You know, if we can tell, then great, if that meets your organizational policy. So it's kind of like the CISO 10,000 foot overview dashboard of your supply chain posture and risk. Yep. And that's one Yeah, that's the, the one we just did general availability right. of a couple weeks ago. Um, the other one though is starting all the way left. So jump all the way over to the other side. Um, this is a uh, chain guard images and our Linux distribution called Wolfie. Um, so to really fix this, to get good SBOMs, to have vulnerability management and asset management under control, 
um, you need to change the entire tool chain you know, used to build software. Um, we could go build a brand new one, try to convince folks to use it, or we can just build our own version of the traditional Linux distribution that folks are already using. Um, and so that's what we did. We have our own Linux distribution, um, the first one designed for container environments and for supply chain security in mind, where every single package in there comes from us. We build it using the Salsa principles. We sign it, we produce the S-bombs, um, you know, we attest to them being correct. And we do the vulnerability management for, on that for you as well. Um, so that's how we keep the vulnerability scans at zero when you, you know, run a scan on one of these. It's because our team is patching them all day right. when, when these results come in. And the idea is to use yep. them in yeah, tandem? You can use them in tandem, yeah. And um, by using our images to build your code too, then, you know, we, we can instrument all of the tools in there and produce these S-bombs automatically for you and, you know, get to that productive world where your supply chain is secure by default without you having to do anything about it. Uh, who's the customer here? Do you already have to have a mature security program with certain things already in place? Like what level of, of organizing, what level does your security program in your organization needs to be able to absorb? Yeah, and force is really targeted right now at folks in regulated compliant environments, trying to meet the new stuff in the executive order and the new NIST framework quickly. Uh, and that's where you're finding business sweet spots, right? In those financial services. Yeah, the folks that are getting hit with industries. this stuff first. Um, for the images, they're just a better container base image. Anybody doing anything with containers should be using our images. Um, they're lighter weight, they're better, they're more secure. There's no drawback. It's you know, just the best container base image out there. So it's a kind of bottoms up developer uh, tool. And the last question, is there a services model as well here? We're, we're uh, an organization may not have the level of expertise around some of these issues that you. Yeah, yeah, we do that as well. Um, it is a big shift for a lot of folks, and you know, the not having the resources to get something done is a big blocker. And uh, you know, we want to be able to get past that blocker and help out. We do a lot of trainings and assessments too. So we we do security assessments and audits of supply chains, and you know, almost like a traditional pen test, but on a supply chain, um, you can think of that as. And then just sessions to just like we talk to you uh, for all explaining how we think about the space. We do that too for CISOs, executives, development teams to talk about. Yeah, you've heard this in the news a million times. People keep yelling at you asking for S-bombs. What does this actually mean? And what should you be prioritizing next year? Right, right. Between you and I having this conversation two years from now, is it an entirely different conversation or are we talking about the same thing? And and if we're having it five years from now, is the conversation changing a little bit? You, t you talked about yeah. this as like a, a ten-year a ten-year journey, uh, and it's moving fast. We we established it's moving very fast. You and I are having a podcast two years from now. How much of this conversation do you think? Yeah, is I think I hope anyway. We're not talking about S bombs as much anymore because they're just there and folks don't have to think about them, right? I think that's really where they have to get to. Um, your build tools are just going to spit out an S-bomb next to the binary. You're not going to notice it, um, and it's just going to be there by default. So in a couple of years, that's all going to be yeah, standard yeah. embedded by default. Um, the malicious maintainers problem isn't going away anytime soon. We're still going to see typo squatting. There's a bunch in that way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's going to take a lot longer.